Good morning, everyone. So I want to uh, just drop an illustration into your mind uh, before I get into this message. We're going to look at Acts chapter 23 today. But um, the Lord just kind of put this illustration on my mind. I was thinking of probably most in the room, maybe you're not, you don't consider yourself sporty, but we've probably all been in some kind of sports, even if it was kickball, you know, something in, in school or some of you were high school athletes or you wrestled, or boxed, or whatever, or we've watched it. But there's this reality in athletics where sometimes you're just getting crushed, <laughs> and you can't seem to, to get ahead. You're just like the, the, the opponent is just pounding, pounding on you, and you just can't seem to even get to a point where it's just dominated by your opponent. And then there's other matches that are exciting to watch, of course, where it seems like both sides are exerting almost this equal influence. And it's just a close match, right? There's this intensity on both sides, and they're just, it's a, it's a good game. Again, it's, it's fun to watch those games, but it's kind of frustrating to play in those games sometimes because you just, you just want to get on top. You just want to get ahead. You want to push into that place of dominance, but you just, you're kind of straining uh, for so long. My brother wrestled um, as a high school student. He was really good, I think, because he was the youngest brother, and he just got beat up constantly, and especially, I mean, I was so much older. I didn't really beat him up that much, but my, the middle brother, I mean, just like crushed him, would hold him down, kind of punish him, and he just kind of learned to wiggle out of things and maneuver, and he was just strong, wiry, light. He was in that lighter class, but he was a good wrestler. But of course, the, 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 the place that you want to be in wrestling or any sports uh, match is in that place of dominating, in that place of being on top of it. And spiritually, this is where God wants us to live all the time. And I'll just confess, I do not live there. I feel like I live so much of my Christian life in that middle place, that middle place of just, okay, I'm, I'm not winning and I'm not losing. You know, it's just this, this tension, this pressure, this, and you just want to punch through. And sometimes, I'll just be honest, it's just pure uh, laziness on, on my part, on your part too, sometimes we just, we just settle for that middle place. We settle for that place of just almost being in a tie with the enemy. But it's not biblical, is it? Because the Bible says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And I'm not talking about circumstances. Sometimes circumstances can be pummeling you, pounding on you. We're not talking about that. We're talking about our spirit, being on top. We can be on top and victorious all the time. We can be more than conquerors all the time. Because why? Who's on our team? God. And he provides everything that we need. And the Bible talks about wrestling, doesn't it? Not wrestling people, but wrestling principalities and powers of darkness and spiritual forces. And there is a very real uh, match that, that we are engaged in every single day. But the good news is that we've been given power by God. He says, be strong in the Lord 
and in the power of his might. Not somehow muster up some kind of, you know, macho strength to, you know, pound on the devil. We're not going to, like, we're, we are no match for the devil. Like, he will crush us every time. Every, every single time we go in our own strength to fight evil forces, we will get crushed. But through the power of God, we can be more than conquerors. So just, I just plant that seed, that kind of illustration. I think it'll connect with some of uh, Acts 23. Um, but really felt I just wanted to start with that. All right, so I feel like I can't jump straight into Acts 23 without first giving you a little summary. And I know some of you were here uh, last time I preached and you remember the, the sermon. Some of you weren't here. Some of you were here but forgot. So I'm just going to give you a little review of Acts chapter 21 and 22. So in this last message, I covered actually both of those chapters. And it tells a story of what happened when Paul finally arrives in Jerusalem. Many of his friends in the church, including a prophet named Agabus, strongly warned Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Do you remember that? Even to the point of tears, they were like crying over it. Everybody was like crying and groaning. Don't, please don't go. You're going to get hurt. And he's like, stop. But Paul, he just did not bend, right? He was resolved to go to Jerusalem. And for those who are kind of brand new to church or the faith, Paul, when we speak of Paul, he's... uh, kind of the main, he's sort of the central figure in these stories they were reading these days. Um, but he was also a great missionary in the first century. He was an apostle, and he spread the message of Jesus all around and wrote much of the New Testament. So we're, we're kind of talking about this man named Paul. So almost immediately after Paul gets into Jerusalem, certain Jews rose up in fury and succeeded in kind of uniting the whole city against Paul. And the city was kind of swelled because it was the, the time of Pentecost and there were just more people than usual in Jerusalem. They dragged Paul out of the temple. They were screaming at him, reviling him. They were beating him mercilessly. He was perceived as a great threat to the Jewish religion because he led so many Jews into a relationship with Jesus. So the Roman authorities had to step in or else Paul would have been killed. Remember that the Jewish people were under the kind of strong, even harsh, very harsh at times, rule of the Romans in the first century. Roman soldiers had to literally go in and carry Paul out because of the violence of the crowd. Picture that. But before Paul was taken into the Roman barracks, he's so crazy, he begs the tribune, he begs the Roman leader uh, to let him go back out. Most of us, I think, would just be, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for bringing me to a place of safety and getting me away from these crazy people. Paul's like, no, I want to go back into the crowd and I want to speak to them. And the tribune said, all right, fine, permits it. And most of chapter 22 is Paul's message to the angry multitudes. He basically shares his story with them. I won't get into that, but it's very powerful. 
uh, the story of Paul. And then it leads us to verse uh, 22. It says this, the scriptures say up to, this is uh, chapter 22, verse 22, up to this word, up to this point, they listened to him. They listened to quite a bit of his testimony. But then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Again, the Romans have to save Paul from, from the angry Jewish people, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Now, the flogging was horrible, but it was a tactic of the Romans to basically get the truth out of a person, to try to figure out what is going on, who is this guy, and why is everybody so angry with him? But just before Paul is flogged, he questions the guy who's about to flog him and says, is it right for you to flog a Roman citizen? And they're like, wait, what? Surprised, they put down their weapons, they immediately kind of backed away, pulled away because it was a great crime for a Roman to flog a Roman citizen. And this all leads to the last verse of chapter 22, which says this. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him. This is speaking of the tribune, the Roman leader who was kind of protecting and in charge of Paul and trying to figure out what to do. The, the tribune had a lot of pressure on him too because if he let a riot just get out of control, he would be in huge trouble. Uh, so he was really serious about this and trying to figure it out. So he un, unbound Paul and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. This is the Jewish chief priest, high chief priest, and the, uh, just all of the religious leaders, the Jews, and said, almost like the tribune was, the Roman tribune saying, okay, guys, you need to, your Jewish issues and religious, you guys figure this out. You got to figure it out. So they, he brought Paul to them and set him before them. All right? So this is the context. This is the setting that we, that we have as we step into chapter 23. So the Romans can't do anything to Paul, really, without a fair trial because he's a Roman citizen. And the Jews can't do anything to Paul because he's in protective custody of the Romans. A great riot was happening, though, and the Roman tribune had to figure out what was going on. So he didn't get in trouble. So he calls for this big meeting of all the chief priests and council, and the tension in the air was palpable. Paul stands before his accusers. I mean, these are his, these are his peers, Literally, he was a Pharisee, which we'll see at some point. He was a Jewish leader. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was a powerful Jewish leader at one point, but now he's a converted follower of Jesus. So the air, the tension in the air was palpable. Paul stands before his accusers, very similar, right, if you know the story of Jesus, to Christ standing before the crowds who were crying, crucify him. I mean, Jesus, these were his own people, right? These were God's chosen people. And yet they were crying out in unison, 
crucify him. So verse 1 of chapter 23 says this. Speaking of Paul. Looking intently at the council, Paul said one sentence. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. The message version puts it this way. Paul surveyed the members of the council with a steady gaze. Can you imagine that scene? Just the council, maybe, I don't know, about this many people in the room, more or less, and Paul just getting up and just looking into the face of every single one of his accusers. And the message version says that Paul then said his piece, friends, I've lived with a clear conscience before God all my life up to this very moment. Now this short sentence was actually pretty loaded. And there are theories as to why it provoked, as we'll see in a few minutes, it provoked the high priest so intensely. First, instead of addressing them as rulers and leaders, he calls them brothers. And some might have taken that um, I think Paul's intent was he was trying to say brothers, you know, friends. Because he, again, he was one of them. But to pompous leaders who loved lording it over others, it was taken as offensive. Or the high priest may have been angered that Paul spoke first. And Maybe the high priest thought he was going to speak first. That's a theory as well. Or maybe it was because Paul said he has lived before God in all good conscience up to this day. And this wasn't a claim to be perfect, but it was a general confession that Paul always gave his best to whatever he believed to be true. Even when he was kind of really deluded into thinking that Christianity was the enemy and he was fighting against that and dragging Christians out of their homes and into prison. Even in that, his zeal was not according to knowledge. He was ignorant in that. And yet it was still a zeal that he was trying to do the right thing. And he talks about that in some of his other letters to the church. It may have been one of these or something else that bothered the high priest and caused him to have Paul smacked. Let's read it. Verse 2. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. History tells us Ananias was kind of a jerk in general. He was mean. He was angry. He was a greedy man. This was just the history books testify to this. And this was not, this smack was not meant to necessarily physically hurt Paul. He could handle a smack, but it was intended to humiliate him. This was in front of all of the most important religious leaders of the day. And he's just smacked like a little child. This tactic was actually used, brought back memories, in the religious school I attended from first to fourth grade, sometimes they whacked you with a wooden pointer that actually that hurt. It was this thick 
kind of pencil thing and they would just smack you. Of course, you're not paying attention, so you get smacked on the knuckles or whatever. But much worse than that was when they would grab you by the hair and drag you in front of everybody and just shake you. And then you'd have to walk back through the crowd of the classroom, you know, in second grade, completely humiliated with your hair a complete mess. The physical pain paled in comparison to the emotional embarrassment. It was a tactic of control. And what makes the slap of Paul even more humiliating is that Paul wasn't a misbehaving second grader. He was a fully grown man, a Jew, a Roman citizen, an apostle, a man of God who had suffered immensely to please his Lord. He was a saint of saints, possibly the greatest Christian who ever lived. And here he is being utterly mistreated by his own people. Now, it's hard not to think about Jesus, right? And the fact that Jesus faced an almost identical situation. Jesus faced the rage and accusation of Jewish leaders, his own people. And they had him flogged. He was beaten with rods. Uh, They plucked out the beard of Jesus. They put a purple robe on him and a crown of thorns and and just bowed down in mockery to him. They blindfolded him and and just smacked him over the head with a a club and said, prophesy if you're the son of God, you know, if you really are who you say you are. And of course, Jesus was crucified, made to carry his own cross and then hung in agony for many hours. But My point here is, how did Jesus respond to this horrific injustice? He was silent. Or he spoke calmly and said things like, my kingdom is not of this world. When he was on the cross, hanging on the cross, we all probably know what he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Isaiah 53 does say that he went like a lamb to the slaughter, just silent. Now, Paul was very Christ-like, but even at this advanced stage of his walk with God, he was, he was still imperfect, right? He was still human in process of becoming more like Jesus, and he would say that. He would say, nothing I'm gonna say this morning I'm not throwing Paul under the bus. If he sat in the front row, he'd be like, that's right, yeah, no, yeah, I know, I know. He would agree. He was human. In fact, Philippians 3 says, I've not attained, you know, forget what is behind, strain toward what is ahead. There's always so much more. There's always such a, a gulf between who we are, even if we've been quite changed by God, but who we are and who God is, Right? There's always a great gap there. Well, verse three says, it shows how Paul really loses his cool, okay? Verse three, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Oops. He snaps a bit here. He is provoked to anger by this humiliating slap 
and kind of loses it over the utter hypocrisy demonstrated by the high priest where you know, there should be some expectation there. Paul is speaking to Ananias, the high priest, who ordered the slap, and he calls him a whitewashed wall, which sounds funny to us because we don't really use that. You know, it's not this like childish, like made up, uh, you know, insult without actually swearing. You know, it's, it, it actually meant something. It had a meaning back then. And everyone in the room knew exactly what Paul was saying. Walls in the ancient world Sometimes rock walls, stone walls would begin to uh, fall apart. They would begin to crumble and they would just kind of lose their strength. But they were whitewashed. They were painted with white paint to give the illusion of strength, the appearance of strength. So outwardly it looked like, oh, that's a great wall, but actually it wasn't. So Paul was saying Ananias the high priest was a hypocrite that he was posing as someone who cared about doing the right thing, but clearly did not care. To strike a Jew in this way was strictly forbidden. And Paul was right, of course, but was not exhibiting the humility and respect that we should have toward people as followers of Jesus. So verse four says this, those who stood by said, it sounds like the high priest was maybe kind of where uh, Nikita is in the booth, you know, maybe, oh, the high priest, you know, maybe elevated a little bit. I'm not sure how, what it looked like, what the scene was, but usually the high priest presided over the, the meetings. And, but there were probably a couple, you know, maybe soldiers or something who were uh, just kind of guarding Paul to make sure he didn't, I don't know, try to run away or something. And so the ones right next to him said, would you revile God's high priest? And then Paul says this really strange thing that nobody can figure this out. He says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now this just baffles you. Like, what? The theologians don't have a clue. I read like seven different commentaries. Nobody knows, okay? (laughs) Of course, some commentaries, of course Paul knew who Ananias was, he was the high priest. It would be like a Catholic priest not knowing who the Pope was. Or the governor, you know, some, maybe the, the governor of Rhode Island not knowing who the president of the United States was. Why, so what, what, why did Paul say that? I mean, so there's different theories. Some say he was using irony, as if to say, I do not think the high priest, that could have actually been the high priest, could have ordered a slap to an innocent man that he was kind of using a, I don't know what to call I guess irony or a figure of speech. Others say that amidst the loud talking, kind of the babble of people arguing and that Paul didn't, wasn't able to distinguish that the high priest gave the order or because... Uh, we know we can kind of imply from the scriptures that Paul's eyesight was poor. And so maybe he didn't realize, he couldn't see that, oh, that was Ananias back there who gave the order. These are all possible theories. Here's my theory to add to the 
the pile of theories. But my feeling is that Paul was internally reeling over the fact that he just lost his cool in front of everyone, in front of his peers that he so wanted to demonstrate virtue to. I think a hundred scriptures were racing through his mind. I think he was thinking of how Christ did not retaliate when they insulted him and beat him. I think that's where his mind was when the guy next to him kind of pokes him and says, would you revile God's priest? And I think Paul just robotically kind of spit out this Old Testament verse from Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, 28 in a sort of denial of guilt, but a general acknowledgement that maybe he shouldn't have done that. It was a very confusing response. But people say dumb things when they're angry. And if Paul didn't realize it was the high priest who gave the order, does that even matter? Whoever gave the order was probably a Jewish leader made in God's image who deserved to be treated with gentleness and respect. I love how the Bible doesn't let us think that the great men and women of God were perfect, right? We see all their great moments, the dividing of the Red Sea, you know, these just powerful moments when we're like, wow, you know, Elijah calling down fire from heaven, but then being terrified of Jezebel, you know, shortly after. I love all the humanness that is in the scriptures, it's all there. We see all their dumb moments. And in a strange way, it's encouraging, isn't it? That the great apostle Paul lost his patience. It encourages me because I lose my patience sometimes. But Paul snaps out of it pretty quick and seems to get a wise strategy from the Lord that we read about starting in verse six. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, they were just, these were just different, different kinds of Jewish leaders with different views, but very different views. I mean, this was like um, half the crowd were Democrats and half the crowd were Republicans. Or if this works better, half the crowd were Red Sox fans. Half the crowd were Yankees fans. It was kind of like that. And Paul kind of realized, hmm, all right, we could work with this. We could work with this. So Paul cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Yankee fan. No, I mean, he said, but he, kind of like that. Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Paul must have chuckled right to himself, like, yeah, it worked. And the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. You know, we, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to, to him? How quickly they changed, okay? Want to kill the guy five minutes earlier, and now it's like, well, maybe he's okay, you know, since he's kind of one of us. So this was an interesting and creative strategy of Paul to kind of get the mob to turn on each other or to win at least half the, half the crowd. And it partially works, but really not for very long, right? Verse 10, when the dissension became violent, the tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him 
away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. <laughs> Paul is saved again and protected once again, a third time here, by the Romans from the angry Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him. They were worried that Paul would be torn to pieces by the crowd. Now we've seen over the last decade and throughout history, of course, but even just in our own time, how crowds can get really worked up in a frenzy of violence. It's scary. There's something about the the mob, the crowd dynamic. People do things that they don't normally do sometimes in in a crowd, in a mob. And there could be even a spiritual dimension to that, demonic powers at work. But can you imagine how Paul felt being the object of wrath of literally thousands of people. And in the council, the most powerful people amongst the Jews in unison wanted Paul dead. He must have wondered if this was the end. Because this is the first century, right? Christians were martyred. I mean, he, he saw James, um, I think, beheaded. He, he, I mean, he was there when Stephen was stoned to death, giving approval. How would he escape death? These were the most powerful people in Jerusalem. So Paul's in the barracks, which is just kind of the lodging place of the Roman soldiers. It wasn't a prison, but it probably also wasn't like a wonderful hotel, um, wonderful time of eating and fellowshipping and drinking with uh, the, the Roman soldiers. Paul was probably placed alone in a tent with some basic necessities like water and bread, maybe. And it's at night when we are tired and alone that fears appear like intimidating monsters. Paul had good reason to be afraid, right? He may have wondered if this was it. This was the end of the road. Let me just interject here and say, you know, I think we can all agree that Paul's experience is pretty extreme. There's probably very few, maybe even none of us in this room that can relate to this level of intense pressure. I don't think any of us have been alone, unarmed, and surrounded by an angry mob who wanted to kill us. I could be wrong. Maybe there's one or two of us that did experience that. But it's hard to imagine. I recently watched, uh, again, the, the movie Selma, which is a really powerful movie about the life of MLK, and was you know, reminded of just the, the price he paid. And it just kind of affected me again when his wife was uh, kind of talking about just how they lived constantly in the shadow of death and constantly had threats against not just... Martin, but also his family. His wife had to carry that. The kids had to experience that and carry that as well. There were people in very powerful positions that wanted to ruin Martin Luther King. Can you imagine that level of darkness? And he was just a minister, right? He was just a follower of Jesus trying to promote justice in the world. But though our darkness is perhaps not to this degree of Paul or Martin Luther King, we do, if we can connect this now, we do experience 
dark nights, or as one writer said, dark nights of the soul. We wonder if we're going to die physically, maybe because of certain diagnoses or whatever that have been over us or physical things. We fear losing everything we have. We come up against debilitating fears that bring us to the dust of despair at times. And that everybody in the room can relate to. We've all been to that place. We've all, we've all been in that dark chamber where we felt alone and we felt like, I do not know how to fix this. But just when the darkness seems to fully envelop us as followers of Jesus, the light appears. Watch what God does in Paul's dark night. Verse 11 says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Reading in between the lines a little bit, I'm picturing Paul for hours in this chamber of darkness and how easy it would have been for him to feel really, really sorry for himself. Like, poor me, where is everybody? I'm here all alone. Where's God? How could God allow this to happen? Why me? I'm going to die tomorrow. How am I going to get out of this situation? I mean, talk about reasons to be negative. Like, he, he could have just gone there and gone and had a one-man pity party. But he didn't. He looked up. He was listening and put himself in a place where he could hear the voice of God. I think he was just, maybe he wasn't praying a lot, but I think he was just waiting for God's word to come to him, and he received it. It's so beautiful, you know, to stand by someone. It's an expression of support, right? It implies that we are with somebody in, in trouble. If, if we are in the arena of humiliation and a person stands with us, it means they come and they join us in our humiliation. That's what Paul is saying. The Lord stood by him. In other words, like there, the strikes to your mouth, the beatings, the revilings, and the, 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 the anger that's directed to you, Paul, it's directed toward me as well. I'm with you. You know, kind of God came right up next to Paul and said, I'm, I'm with you in this, my son. Another way of saying it would be that the Lord drew near. And God has his ways of manifesting his nearness in our life. We have an awareness that he's not only close, but working on our behalf. So the word from the Lord was simple. Be encouraged. Take courage. Take heart. In other words, uh, lift up your head, Paul. Look at me. I am God. Nothing is going to happen to you that I do not let happen. I am in control of this situation. That's what God was saying. And the Lord goes on to tell Paul that his message, despite being, uh, you know, unpopular, was accurate. God calls his testimony, Paul's testimony, facts about me. I love that. 
How encouraging to know that God is saying amen to your message, even though maybe nobody else likes it. Everyone around you hates the message and wants to kill you. Then God says, this is powerful, you must testify also in Rome. What? Whoa. Did you catch that? All right, where are they now? They're in Jerusalem. He's surrounded by thousands of people who want to kill him. And God says, yeah, I'm thinking Rome next. Yeah, I'm thinking we're going to go to Rome. And Paul's thinking, that sounds really good to me. That means Paul is not going to die in Jerusalem, right? Reading in between the lines. This was essentially a promise that he'd make it out alive and get to Rome. What a relief. Now watch how this wonderful word of assurance from the Lord is tested. (laughs) And this often happens with us. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. These guys were serious. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister, this is God's sovereignty here, right? Now the son of Paul's sister heard through the grapevine of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks. I don't even know how he did that. This little kid just like, I don't know, somehow he got in. Yeah, I got some snacks for for Paul, you know, uh, Uncle Paul. And so he goes in and, and, and tells Paul. But I just find the timing so interesting. Paul just had this visitation from God with a beautiful word of assurance that he'd make it to Rome safely. I mean, this is good news, right? This will lift your spirits if you're, you know, in that place of darkness. And yet, as they often do, circumstances were saying something very different. The circumstances were pointing to the fact that 40 angry Jewish men were so committed to kill Paul that they bound themselves by oath to not eat or drink until they killed him. The word Paul received the night before was tested. You know, I wonder if Paul thought, ah, did I really hear from God last night? You know, in the prayer closet, when God is speaking, everything feels so sure, doesn't it? It just feels like, yes, Lord, you are with me. You're going to do it. Yes, God, I'm feeling it. And then we get down into the real circumstances of life and we are tested. And we're like, wait, did I hear from God? Was that? And this is what God does. He will test us. But you know, Paul seems pretty calm. I'll give you the summary of the the last verse. I'm not going to go through it. I don't have time, but... Uh, verses 17 to 35. I'll just kind of summarize that and then we'll, we'll bring it in for a landing. But um, basically, uh, this is exactly how it plays out. This little kid, you know, kind of blows the whistle and exposes this whole thing. So they end up telling the, basically they tell the Roman tribune about the plan, this strategy to kill Paul. And so the tribune takes it very seriously. 
They, they, they listen to this little boy and they're like, okay, we're going we're gonna to protect him. And they, they listen to this. It's incredible. Verse 23, he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. This is in Caesarea and Herod's palace. Talk about, again, like Roman protection. I mean, like over 400 uh, soldiers just surround, in the nighttime, just <laughs> basically escorting Paul through the night to make sure nobody, so the Jews didn't succeed at their ambush. And they brought him into uh, Herod's palace, which is a really cool place. We were in Israel earlier this year for the first time in our life, and we were actually in, we were able to walk around the palace. I mean, it doesn't look like a palace anymore, but you could actually see sort of the, the layout of it. And we, we saw the, the prison. We stood inside the, the little prison that, that Paul was in um, at one point when, when he was uh, in that place. It's actually a beautiful place. But again, we can hardly relate to, let me bring this in for a landing, to Paul's story of being beaten and having angry mobs, really the whole city against him. And probably, you know, we have never experienced that. But what we can relate to, again, is being at times in a dark and lonely place. We can relate to being in desperate situations, not knowing how to get out, not knowing how we're going to get a handle on our fears, on our anxieties, just on our circumstances, how we're going to reconcile with certain people, certain relationships, family drama, you can financial problems that we face, so many different things that we feel are, back to my illustration at the very beginning, we feel like the enemy, we feel like the opponent is going to, we're holding off, holding off, but we feel like we're going to be dominated. And the great temptation is to feel sorry for ourselves and sulk and pout. But we need to be like Paul and wait for a fresh word from God in the night. And what is so encouraging about this story is that God visits Paul in the place of darkness and speaks a word of hope. God then orchestrates circumstances that overturn Satan's plan to destroy Paul. It doesn't mean that God always makes everything work out just how we want it to work out as Christians. That's ridiculous. No, Jesus said, in the world we'll have trouble. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening. Like we're gonna face trials and tribulations and afflictions just like anyone else in the world, maybe sometimes more as believers. So that's part of life. But we're talking about our spirit we're talking about God, you know, causing us to be victorious even in the midst of our trouble. The reality is many saints do die young. Many Christians died in the first century. Many spent time in prison. Some were tortured. This is the walk with God that we've signed up for. But whether things, outward things, work out good or bad from an earthly perspective, we can be sure that the Lord will stand with us and he will assure our hearts and he will cause his plans to succeed in our lives. 
So lift up your eyes in your, your time of darkness. Now, maybe you're not having a time of darkness. Maybe you're like, I don't even, I don't even care about this message. It doesn't, it doesn't even relate to me because I'm having, I'm having the best week ever. Uh, life is so fun right now and everything's going, going awesome. All right, yeah, just wait two weeks, okay? You'll be there. <laughs> I'm thinking of my old pastor. You'll have your dark night of the soul. Like, oh my, I remember listening to this message as a, in my first year of being a Christian. It's called The Making of a Man of God by David Wilkerson. And I mean, he just said, he's just thundering this thing. You'll have your night of pain. I'm, thinking, I'm like, I've been walking with Jesus for like six months. I'm like, what does that mean? Oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? I don't know if I want to be a Christian anymore. But, uh, you know, he's right on because there are nights of pain. There are hours of isolation. There are places of confusion. There are dark nights of the soul that we will face as believers. And honestly, you might feel so surrounded by so many people right now. I have so many friends, so so much support. But there are times when you feel, even though you might have a lot of support and friends and family, there are times that there are certain things that we face and we face them alone. It's like us against forces of darkness. And those are, the, those are the moments when we realize we can't just lean on people. We need to depend on God. And they drive us to God. They either break us or they drive us to depend on God. And we see what he can do. And I'll encourage you. I've been a Christian for many decades. And I will tell you, man, I've been there many times and God is faithful. Now, it's been, I feel like there's been times where I've almost been broken through trials and through just the enemy crushing. But it forces me to push into God, and God is with me. He's not, he's not just sending me into the arena of the lions alone. He's standing with me. He's strengthening me, even at the time if I didn't perceive it. And there are, there are just breakthroughs that happen. And I, I would testify that the greatest moments of growth in my walk with God have come in the darkest nights. So there will be dark nights, but no need to be afraid. The Lord, the Lord will stand with us and give us everything we need to get on top and to dominate, to be more than conquerors. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for just your presence, you standing with us, standing by us. Thank you that you're not like the kind of friend that when we're going through things kind of backs away because, whoa, they're kind of going through things and I don't really want to get involved in that. Lord, you get involved in our trouble. You draw near in our trouble. You, you feel our trouble. You, you, you sympathize with our weaknesses and you're an ever-present help in times of trouble. And so, Lord, we love you for that and for so many other things, but thank you for not letting us go in our tough times. Uh, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would get up on top of the enemy. Lord, that we would not be dominated, that we would not be pushed around or bullied or beat up, that we would not uh, even just kind of be in this place of resistance. But, Lord, bring us to a place of victory. Make us more than conquerors through Christ our Lord. Give us the victory in our lives. And we pray this in your wonderful and powerful name. Amen.